All right, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 3. My name is Aaron. So glad you're here. If you are visiting with us, welcome. Uh, We are so, so glad that you have chosen to come and meet with us this morning. And we do hope that you find uh, what we see here in the scriptures today to be beneficial to you. Uh, We're in the book of Acts, chapter 3. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking, we have been looking at the end of Acts chapter 2, which kind of sets the stage uh, going forward. Of, it's kind of the birth of the early church. And, and what we've seen in the end of Acts chapter 2 is kind of this overview of what was going on as this, this group of believers started gathering together and meeting together, and, and they were moved um, to go out on mission, but also by love for each other to keep meeting together. And so Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2 is sort of a summary statement of what was going on. And it talks about how they were meeting in the temple and about how they were adding to the numbers of people who were meeting with them. And then in Acts chapter 3, it, it gets a little more specific. And it, it recounts sort of this one very specific episode that illustrates what that looked like when they were meeting in the temple and when, when they were... Um, fellowshipping together and all those kinds of things. So we're going to go through all of Acts chapter 3 this morning. Um, it seems like kind of a lot, but, but we're going to work, work through it together. And we're going to start by reading just the first 11 verses. So if you would, uh, follow with me. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We would love for you to grab that and follow along with us. And if you're in that Bible, we're on page 911. So here we go, Acts Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. So, um, I, don't, I don't know if you're like me. Um, if you are like me, you probably have to say, I'm sorry, rather frequently. Maybe that's more um, a personal problem for me, but... I, but Maybe, maybe that's true for you. I say sorry a lot. Um, in fact, there was a point in my life where I thought, I, you know what, I should just get a t-shirt printed that says, I'm sorry, it would save me a lot of time. Because I find myself messing up so much and having to apologize all the time for messing up. But one of the things I was thinking about this, one of the things about saying you're sorry and apologizing is that I'm sorry, the, the words themselves, I'm sorry, are not actually always so straightforward. Do you know what I mean by this? Like, okay, um, if you have kids and you're working with kids and trying to get them to understand what it means to apologize for something, 
Like, especially if you have um, more than one kid, and so, so siblings, um, siblings often need to apologize to each other. And so as a parent, you come in and you say, all right, what do you think you need to say to your brother? I'm sorry. Well, go say it to them, not to me. I'm sorry. And you know, as a parent, when you hear it, right, you hear, and, and you know, okay, they don't mean that at all, right? And so then if, if you're a heavy-handed parent like me, um, and then so you try to like push in on that, well, what does that mean when you say you're sorry? What are you saying? Do you really feel... And it's like, I don't know. I'm saying what you told me I have to say, right? Like, somehow in our minds, we know we, we are supposed to say something when we've messed up, but what it actually means and what we're actually feeling doesn't always match up with the words. I was thinking through this, and I think, honestly, there's different levels of what it means to say that you're sorry, okay? So, like, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list of, of all the ways that we say we're sorry, but, but there's this one level when we say we're sorry and we're really not sorry at all, okay? This is the, like, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm sorry, but this happened and this happened and this happened, so it's really not my fault. So I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because what happened was not of my own creation. And honestly, there's a way of saying I'm sorry where you're actually saying, I'm sorry, but this is your fault, okay? Um, and I was kind of picking on my kids, but this is one that I do as a parent a lot. I'm sorry I yelled at you, but if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have yelled at you. And so even though I'm apologizing, the real focus here needs to be on what you did, not on what I did, which is not at all being sorry, okay? Um, this is the level a lot of public figures base their apologies on. Have you ever heard a politician apologize? It's usually this. I'm sorry that you thought something wrong about the okay thing that I did. Um, It's not really an apology. There's another level where we are sorry. We're not sorry for what we did. We're just sorry we got caught. Um, (laughs) I'm so, so sorry that you know I did this. I'm going to do it again because I'm not actually sorry for what I did, but I'm just going to learn from my mistakes so that I can do it more secretly next time. That's kind of the second level. I'm, I'm sorry you found out. I'm sorry I'm getting punished for this, but I'm really not sorry for what happened, which is very connected to this next level, which is I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry about the consequences of what happened. So I'm not sorry necessarily for what I did, but I am sorry for how it turned out. I'm sorry that you're upset with me, and I'm sorry that it's caused us this problem, but I don't really think what I did was all that bad. Of course, there is the level of genuine sorrow. I really, truly am sorry for what I did. I really do look at what I've done, and I see it as wrong, and the consequences are bad, and I feel bad that I got found out, but more than that, in my heart, it's hitting me, I truly have done something wrong. And when that hits, when that happens, it causes an emotional response within me, sort of almost a revulsion for what I've done, a a hurt and a pain that's oftentimes very, very difficult to deal with. And when we get to that level, when we 
are faced not just with the consequences of what we've done, although that's a part of it, and it often triggers this and brings us to this point, but instead when we look at it and say, this is, I have done wrong, and on the base fundamental level, what I have done is wrong, and it's my own fault, and what I'm dealing with is because of what I've done, it creates in us this sort of, at times, almost overwhelming sense of sorrow and hurt and pain. And so the question today, and what we want to look at is, where do you go when you hit that level? What do you do when you truly, honestly feel a sense of sorrow and hurt and pain for what you have done? And not necessarily, and this is not the goal this morning, I'm not talking about when you are hurt and and going through a, a time of pain and struggle because of what others have done to you. What we're looking at, what I want to talk about this morning is when it's truly, honestly, because of something that you yourself have done, and you know that, and you recognize that, and you've been brought to a point where there's nowhere else to hide, and there's no one else left to blame. It's on you. What do you do with that? I want to see what God says about that. In order to do that, I want to look at Acts chapter 3 and actually kind of launch off of the part we read, which sort of sets up a sort of, I don't know if you want to call it like a mini sermon or an impromptu kind of discourse by the apostle Peter, um, who speaks to a group of people who witness what just happened. So we read verses 1 through 11, Peter and John are going into the temple, and they come across this man who can't walk, who's never been able to walk. He's been unable to walk for his entire life. And all he's asking for there is he sits at the gate of the temple is for them to just give him some money. Because in the culture, in the time period in which Peter and John were living and the early church was started, there were no social services. There was no um, governmental assistance for those who were in need. And so if a person was born with any sort of disability, they were out of luck. And their only chance was to depend on just the kindness of of passing strangers. And and probably, um, strategically, the thinking of this man was the best place to find kind people who might be willing to be generous was outside of the temple. Because these are people who are going into worship and maybe their conscience will, will... kind of push on them enough that they'll help me out. And so he's been there begging for money just for for food to survive. And Peter turns to him and says, I don't have any money. I can't help you out, but I'll give you what I've got. And it turns out to be that, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the man is miraculously healed. Thinking he wanted and only needed, you know, just enough to survive, he gets something much greater and much better. And of course, his reaction is to to celebrate and to start shouting praises to God. And everybody around sees what's going on. And they've known this guy because he's been there for years and years and years begging. And they've known, they know that, that he's never in his life been able to walk. And so this could only happen by some completely and totally miraculous power And they see what happens and they look to Peter and to John and they're like, what have you done? Because this guy who could never walk and now he can walk, you must be some sort of amazing um, prophet. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you have some sort of deity, you have some sort of power. And they're so in awe and so shocked at what has happened that they look to Peter and they're like, tell us what's going on. We need to know 
what's going on. Because I mean, think about this. If somebody did something this miraculous, I think all of us would want to hear what they have to say. And so he's got their full and undivided attention. And so I want to look at what he says. So in verse 11, while he, which is the man who was just healed, clung to Peter and John, which you can imagine, he's never been able to walk. Now he can walk. He's like hugging them and just thanking them. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, the crowd gathering around, he addressed the people. And here's what he says. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? Which is kind of a funny question to ask. Why are you so amazed? I don't know, Peter, did you realize what just happened? I mean, are you serious? Why are we wondering at this? He couldn't walk. Now he can walk. That's amazing. Why? But he says, why? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? Peter wants to make this very, very clear. I didn't do this. This was not by my power, by my strength. I have no ability, Peter says, no ability on my own to heal a broken or a disabled person. I I can't do it. And so, of course, the question that would rise up is, well, then who did? And in verse 16, he answers this by his name, which is talking about Jesus Christ, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter starts out and he says, I didn't do this. This was not me. This was Jesus. Jesus, and it was faith in the name of Jesus, and it was the power of Jesus that did this. But I kind of skipped over a couple verses because that's not all Peter said. And for some reason, Peter, in telling them, this is awesome, this is amazing, and I'm not responsible Jesus is the one who's responsible, and yet for some reason, he feels the need to remind them who Jesus is and to remind them with kind of a little bit of a gut punch. Look what he says, verse 13. He said in verse 12, uh, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers... He's connecting here with the Jewish people. This is a Jewish audience. He's at the temple. These are Jewish people. And he says, this God, it's the God that you worship. This is the God of the Jewish people, that God. He glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So Peter's message is, I didn't heal this guy. Jesus healed this guy. You remember Jesus, you killed him? This is this amazing and awesome and celebratory moment. Everybody's excited. Everybody's happy. This guy who couldn't walk, now he can walk. Yay! It's your fault Jesus died. Thanks, Peter. Huge turn. I wasn't expecting that one. For some reason, Peter feels the need 
to pivot from, look, Jesus is great and glorious and wonderful, and he's powerful. And God, the God that we all worship, glorified him and gave him the power to be able to do miracles like this. And in the same breath, he has to remind his crowd, and you killed him. You denied that he was who he said he was. Even though while he was on earth, he was doing miracles similar to, and some honestly even greater than this. So you guys are all excited right now that this guy can walk. Jesus did that while he was here. He did other stuff. He made blind people see. He brought a dead man back to life. And you guys denied that he was God. You hated him. You had him arrested. You had the opportunity because you gave him over to the Romans. This is Peter speaking to the Jewish people still. The Jewish people delivered Jesus over to the Romans. And even at that, Pilate gave you the opportunity to say, let's back off on this. He gave you an option, take Jesus or take this murderer, this convicted murderer. And you as a crowd cried out that you'd rather have Jesus crucified than this convicted murderer. Peter is like laying it on really, really heavy here. You killed the one who is the author of, of life. Why? Why? I mean, why go there, Peter? Why in this moment of celebration? And in fact, think about this. It would seem very possible at this point in time with this miracle and all these people are so amazed and they're here and they want to hear what's Peter going to say about this. And Peter has the opportunity the opportunity to just point to, look, Jesus healed this man. He can heal you too. And instead, for some reason, he goes with guilt. He lays it at their feet. He reminds them about Jesus' death, about his betrayal, and about his resurrection. Why? Here's the reason why. Or at least part of the reason why. Because we all have no hope of freedom from our guilt until we first accept our own responsibility for our guilt. The idea that, that we can, can celebrate and have joy and be excited and be free from the pain and the hurt that dogs us, that weighs us down, without first acknowledging and understanding that we are responsible for it, it doesn't work. The only way we can have hope, the only way we can find forgiveness, is if we first accept responsibility. We have no hope of freedom from our guilt until we first accept responsibility for our guilt. Now, it's not, it's not fun, okay? This isn't like popular. This wasn't Peter's attempt to get the crowd really on his side. He wasn't trying to rally like, you guys love me now, don't you? There's nothing worse at times. There's nothing worse than coming face to face with our own responsibility for what we've done. And yet, it's a vital, necessary part 
of finding peace and finding forgiveness. Look at what he says. What? As we go on, and, and let me pause before I do that. Why, why is it so necessary? Why do we have to admit our own responsibility? Why do we have to come face to face with our own guilt? And he, here's why, and we're going to see this as we go through, but I, I want to make sure we, we catch it here. Until we accept our own responsibility for our guilt, we will constantly always be trying to justify ourselves. We'll always be trying to make excuses. If it's not our fault, it has to be somebody else's fault. If things have gone wrong and we can't admit that it's because of our own sin, then two things happen. Number one, we're looking and blaming other people. And number two, we're working really, really hard to prove that we are okay. That's what it means to try to justify ourselves. We're trying to prove that we're okay. And we know deep down we're not. And so we just keep working harder and harder and harder to try to be okay. And we trap ourselves further and further and further under this weight of not being good enough, but trying and trying to be good enough. And we never, ever will. And our hope cannot ever rest on ourselves to make ourselves good enough. But we don't have the hope of someone else, namely here, specifically Jesus, being able to come in and rescue us from that until we can admit we need help. As long as we think that on our own, somehow we're going to justify ourselves. As long as we think that somehow on our own, we can make ourselves good enough, we'll never find the true help we need and the true hope that we need. And we'll never find the forgiveness we need, and we'll never find the peace we need, because we're constantly trying to earn something we never can earn. But the good news is we don't have to. Let's go on in verse 17, because here's what Peter says. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. Now, at first glance, this might seem like Peter's trying to excuse what they did, which is exactly what we just talked about in, in saying that we're sorry or in apologizing, but not really apologizing, not really feeling guilty, just making an excuse. You killed the Holy One of God. I'm sorry we did, but we didn't know. That's not what Peter's saying here. And we have to read it in the context of what he says next. They knew what they were doing. And they had ample opportunity to know that this was the Son of God. And they, with eyes wide open, had him murdered. What he's saying they didn't know, the ignorance they had. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here's what he's saying. When you had Jesus crucified, you knew you were killing someone great. Whether you would admit that he was a prophet, whether you would admit that he was the son of God, you knew that you were having an innocent man murdered. What you didn't know was that you were just working out a part of God's plan all along. See, God knew this was going to happen. In fact, God had or had gone, spoken through the mouths of prophets beforehand and said, this is what's going to happen. This was God's plan. Now, this is that crazy tension we get to at times, 
where we have to ask ourselves, how is this possible or is this possible that human beings can do something which is wrong, which is to use the, the, the word that, that Jesus would use, sinful, and yet at the same time, it's a part of God's plan. Does that mean, and this is the question that so many people would ask, does that mean that it's not actually wrong? Because it worked out for good in the long run? Well, no. And Peter makes it clear here. What you did was wrong. We sin. Human beings sin, and it's wrong, and it's a front and a front to a holy God who created us, who is perfect and is just, and yet, God, in, in his infinite wisdom, in a way that, that I don't understand, in a way that, honestly, we'll probably never understand on, on this side of eternity, he has orchestrated and uses all of those things, good and bad, everything, to work together his ultimate plan. Peter says this, uh, verse... 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. We'll come back to that. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So he wants to make this point and make it really clear. Look, you didn't know this. What you did was wrong and you were wrong to do it. But here's what you didn't know, that God was working all along and he knew this was going to happen and his prophets spoke about it. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. He's mentioning Moses, he's mentioning Samuel, because these were people that, that the, Jewish, uh, the, the, the Jewish people here at the temple would have been familiar with. They knew who these people were. These were great luminaries of their religion. These were the, the great prophets of their past. These were people that they listened to. And now Peter's drawing the line between what those people had said and what's going on now. And he's saying, here's a connection Make this connection. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So again, in this sort of difficult and yet necessary way, Peter is pointing out, you should have seen this. You could have known this. Your prophets said and told you that a Messiah, a Savior was coming. God was going to send someone to save you. And Jesus came. And if you've been paying attention, you would have connected the dots. And yet, like Moses said, in verse 23, every, every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. You didn't listen. Jesus came. He worked miracles. 
He spoke about the kingdom of God and you rejected him and you sentenced him to death. So what do you do with that? I mean, okay, Peter, we get it, right? This is our fault. And that's totally a necessary part of what Peter's doing here. He's got to convince and he's got to make sure that the people understand that it's their fault, the situation they're in, that they bear personal responsibility for their sin. All of us have to come to a point of understanding that we bear personal responsibility for our sin. That we personally, all of us, bear responsibility for our separation from God. See, God created a a, a perfect world. And through the sin of humans, that perfection, that, that shalom, that peace, that perfection that God created was broken, and we live now in a broken world. And it can be easy for us at times to look at the broken world we live in and to say, the circumstances of my life are such that things are bad. The, the separation that I feel from God is a, is a result of the circumstances around me. And certainly, look, I, I mean, we have to be honest. Circumstances can be very, very bad. And I am not in any way denying that you may have had some horrible things happen in your life. We live in a broken world and the brokenness impacts all of us. And none of us can escape the impact of sin in our world. And things have happened to all of us that were outside of our control. That is true. That is absolutely true. However, we also all bear personal responsibility for our own sin. All of us personally are separated from God. And it's not anybody's fault but our own. And so what do we do about it? When we understand, when we acknowledge, when we get to a point where we can say, I am where I am because of my own sin. And I can't blame anybody else. I can't make up excuses. And we get to a point where it's not just, I'm afraid of being found out. And it's not just the consequences are bad. Is there a way I can manage the consequences of this? When we truly get to a point where we've said, I am in this situation because of my own sin and my own sin is repulsive to me. I am repulsive to myself. What do we do? We could just sink further and further into despair. And that's where some people go. But that's not Peter's point here. And Peter is not saying all these things to his audience to try to make them feel bad. That's not his goal. His goal is not to send them into depression. His goal is not revenge. Okay, so Peter's not setting out to say all these things to make them feel bad for what they did so that he can say, you guys murdered him, not me. I was right all along. That's not his point. In fact, Peter's whole purpose is to give them hope. Peter's whole purpose in speaking all of this 
is to let them know that there's a way up, that there's a way out of their sin, that there's a way to be forgiven. Look again at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. This is Peter's message. The only way out of your guilt of the condemnation which you rightly deserve, is to repent. Now, what does that word mean? Because that's, let's be honest, that's a very, um, I don't know, church kind of word, repent. We don't use it that often in normal speech. And so I think maybe sometimes we get a misunderstanding of exactly what the word repent means. The word repent, um, translated here, is from the Greek word metanoeo, which literally means to change your mind. What Peter's saying is you have to think in a new and different way. Your hope, the way out, is by changing what's in your mind when it comes to your sin and when it comes to Jesus and what he's done for you. Peter's telling his audience that what you need to do to be saved is to believe something different. And what we need to do, all of us, when we get to a point where we're met face to face with the consequences and with the guilt and with the shame of our sin, if we want out of there, what we have to do is to change what we believe, to believe something different about God. And here's what it is. Most of us spend our lives believing that the only way out is to pull ourselves out. The only way to make up for what we've done is to try to do better, to promise we won't do it again, and to work harder never to do it again, to replace all of the bad things we've done with new good things. And maybe if I work hard enough and I keep trying and I keep trying, then maybe my good will outweigh my bad. And then I'll start to feel better and maybe God will accept me then. And maybe he'll see that I'm trying really hard. And if I start moving toward God, then maybe he'll come and meet me halfway. And we have to repent. We have to change our mind because that's not the way it works. Our only hope, our only hope of salvation is not for us to be able to work our way to God. Our only hope of salvation is that God sent Jesus Christ down to us. And we have to believe and we have to trust in that and that alone to forgive us of our sins. For our sins to be, as Peter says, to be blotted out, to be wiped out, to be forgiven, there's nothing we can do to earn that. But everything that needs to be done has already been done by Jesus Christ. The whole reason he came to earth and he suffered and he died was to take our sins on himself, to take the punishment that we deserve for this guilt 
This guilt and this shame and the consequences that we bear on ourselves, Jesus took that already on himself when he died on the cross. And that was his purpose. And he died that death that we should have died in our place for us. And then he rose again victorious over it, as Peter said, to prove that he was more powerful than death and that he had the power then to erase and forgive our sins. And we can't do anything to earn that. All we can do is believe. And all we have to do is believe and trust in that. And if we do, the promise is that by trusting in Christ, we are forgiven. And that, as Peter says, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. By our sin, by our, our, our sin breaks the relationship that God originally had with human beings. And we have no relationship with God because of our sin. But by trusting in Christ, that relationship is restored. And now we have the presence of God to bring us peace. How? How does that work? What kind of hope is that? How does trusting in Christ to forgive our sins bring us peace? Here's a big part of it. And this is not all. I mean, this is a huge topic and this could fulfill volumes of what it means to, to find peace by trusting in Christ. But just, just in the, the area that we've been talking about this morning, the peace that comes is the peace of knowing that this issue is settled. That my guilt and my shame is not something I have to keep trying to work to either cover up or make up for. But instead, now by trusting in what Jesus did, he's bearing that guilt. He has already borne that guilt for me, and now I am free. I am free of my guilt and my shame because he's taken the penalty for me. And I don't have to hide. And some of you know Some of you know the incredible stress and pain and difficulty of constantly trying to hide your guilt and your shame and your sin. Because you believe that as long as nobody knows, maybe it'll be okay. And you've, man, you're killing yourself trying to hide. You don't have to hide. You can't make up for what you have done. That's true. But you don't have to. And you don't have to prove to anybody else that you're good enough. And you can be open and honest about who you are and where you are and what you've done because Jesus already took the penalty for it. It also means you're free from trying to earn God's favor. The idea that we would try to work for peace is uh, almost contradictory even to say it. The very idea of peace is like antithetical to working and earning and striving on our own. You can't earn peace. Peace only comes 
when you let go of trying and trying and trying to achieve right standing with God on your own, and you let God take care of it for you. I um, I was thinking about when, when my kids were little, uh, and we'd be in the in the van, and uh, this one particular time, one of the kids was in a in in their car seat, so they're buckled in in the car seat. And we were stopped. I think Joni had run into the store, and so I was sitting out in the van with the kids. And, and one of them dropped a toy down on the floor. And they're reaching and reaching for this toy and, like, starting, you know, get really worked up, crying and screaming, like, wanted that toy so bad, and reaching and reaching. And so I turned around, and I was going to reach back and grab it. And they were like, no, no, I'll get it. I'll get it. And so I was going to reach, and they're like, don't do it. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking, I'm like, okay, look, I can reach down and grab that toy for you so easily, but they wanted so badly to do it themselves. And instead we're, we're straining, throwing a fit, but, but causing themselves in their minds, such pain and torture. And I could have just so easily reached down and grabbed it and given it to them. But how often is that exactly what we do? We totally stiff arm God and say, look, I got this. I got this. And God sent Jesus to take our sin, to take the punishment for us, to give us peace. And we've decided that instead we're going to reach and strive and work for, and and just like a kid in a car seat, there's no shot that we're going to reach it. We can't do it. We can't make it. And we're pushing and pushing and pushing and we're crying and we're screaming, why can't I ever find peace? And God's already done everything that needs to be done for us to have peace. So let me just wrap up by, by, by asking you to think about this. Think about the different places that you rest your hope. What are you putting your hope in to bring you peace? What is the thing or the things, what are the things that you believe are going to come through for you? Where are you investing your time and your energy to try to find peace? Is it in your finances? Have you decided that, or, or you're maybe you haven't even like found it, but you're hoping, you're hoping, if you could just get this deal to come through, if you could just land that career or get that raise, and if that financial situation would just click, is that what you're hoping in? Is it in a relationship? Are you hoping that if you just find the right person to spend your life with, or maybe it's you have a relationship, but that relationship is so strained, but you're like, if I could just get it right, if we could just fix it, if I could just get that person to love me more, Maybe your hope is in your reputation. If people think the right things about me, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have peace. If I can just project the right image. What if? What if instead of putting your hope in those things, which will all ultimately let you down, what if you rested your hope in the one Thing, the one person who will never let you down. What if you were to put your hope 
in the one place that will not fail. The only place strong enough to hold up to that expectation. You know what happens when we put the expectation of peace, the hope of peace on anything other than God? That expectation is a God-sized expectation, and the weight of it will crush anything we rest it on except for God. And when you put the expectation of peace onto a relationship, it will crush that relationship because that person was not created to bear your sin, to forgive what you've done, or to give you hope and peace. They just weren't, and they can't. And when you put that burden on them, it will destroy the relationship. When you put that on your finances, it will strain you internally and strain your finances to a place. They will never be able to hold that up. And you will never have enough money to give you peace. You will always be wanting more. Always. But what if you took that hope and placed it in the one only place that is strong enough to hold it up. To put that hope and to put that trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. So as we think through this, a couple of questions to take with you. And we'll take some time, some quiet time for reflection. You can pray about these things. If you have questions or you'd like to talk to somebody about this, what does this look like? What does it mean to place my trust on Christ and Christ alone? We'd love for you to write on that response card uh, that was in your bulletin. If you have questions, if you'd like to meet with one of us, we'd love to talk to you more about it. Please do that. And then you can put it up here in the box on the communion table or in the basket on your way out. And we would love to have conversations with you about what it looks like to truly place your trust in Christ alone. What would it look like? First question, what would it look like for you to admit your sin? Where are you on that spectrum? Are you, are you in the place of making excuses? Are you sad, but only sad that you got caught and just looking for a way to do it better next time so you don't? Are you trying to manage the consequences of your sin rather than recognizing and dealing with the root cause? What would it look like for you to admit your own personal responsibility for your sin. Number two, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you believe that Jesus is the only one able to take the wrath for that sin? Do you really believe that? I mean, look, 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 this is an easy thing to say. In your heart, do you really believe that you can't do it on your own? That on your own, you're, you're, you're just constantly running on a wheel and you're never going to get there. That Jesus is the only one and not only is he the only one, but he is the one and he's available. And he's made the offer that all who believe will be forgiven. Do you believe that? Number three, what are you hoping in for peace, for forgiveness, for joy? What are you resting that hope on? Where have you taken that, that and it's a God-sized weight that belongs only to God, and where have you taken that and what have you placed it on instead? And are you ready? Are you ready this morning to, and and we said it means to change your mind. Are you ready to repent of that? To say that that weight doesn't go there and I can't keep resting it there, 
It goes only on God. Let's pray, and we'll take some time to reflect on this before we share communion together. Heavenly Father, God, we do love you. We love you because you loved us first. Because in spite of our sin, because of our sin, you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And it's our fault. It's our sin. And yet, you love us still. God, that's amazing. That's overwhelming. I can't even begin to grasp the magnitude of what that means. So my prayer this morning for all of us is that we would believe that, that we would trust in that, that we would rest our hope completely and totally in that and that alone, not on anything we can do, not on earning anything on our own merit, but in what Jesus has done for us. And it's in his name, the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that I pray this.